0: Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised.
1: This is a momentous hour
2: in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe.
0: It has become one of the most famous dates in all history. 6th of June, 1944. The day men of the Allied Expeditionary Force, American farm boys, English shop workers, Hebridean fishermen, men from all walks of everyday life, men from the free world, and men escaped from Nazi brutality, stormed ashore on the beaches of Normandy to begin the liberation of France. War is an ugly, mean, miserable business. There's nothing glamorous or glorious about war, but we had a job to do,
2: and it was necessary to do it.
0: By the summer of 1944, the Second World War was approaching its fifth year. Everyone, British, French, German, Russian, knew the invasion was coming. Where and when, though, remained a mystery to all but its anxious planners, holed up in a grand mansion outside Portsmouth, and their impatient political overlords in London and Washington. But what was not a secret, was that wherever and whenever it came, the invasion would begin the final battle to settle the course of the largest global conflict the world has ever witnessed. When the first paratroopers dropped from the skies above Normandy, they were leaping into hell and history. It was the beginning of the end game of the Second World War.
3: Stand tiptoe when this day is named.
0: This is Wars That Shaped the World.
2: i to the
4: to to
1: As I climbed aboard, I felt tense, extremely frightened. Much as I imagined a condemned man must feel on his last morning when he's led from the cell to the gallows. It was as if I were in a dream world, and any moment I would wake from this unreality. I was scared after death, yet at the moment the glider parted company with the ground, I experienced an inexplicable change. The feeling of terror vanished, replaced by exhilaration. I felt as if I were on top of the world and I I remember thinking, you've had it chum, it's no good worrying anymore. The die is cast, what will be will be and there's nothing that you can do about it. So I sat back to enjoy my first trip to continental Europe.
2: Cast <laughs> off, shut up. We are casting off. The bastards hear us coming.
0: Stand by. Complete silence. Oh
2: dear. Link arms. Feet up. Race
1: Go the lights up the oxen back <laughs> Tuesday sixth of
2: June nineteen
0: forty-four was barely an hour old when Major John Howard and the men of D Company, 2nd Battalion, Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, hurtled out of the night sky above Norman. Forward, Robert! Forward, man, for God's sake! The first glider landed with such force the two pilots were hurled through the windows and knocked unconscious. They were followed by Howard's men firing their Sten guns and throwing grenades as they charged towards the bridge. Was a brief but bloody struggle. Shoot
5: him. Ah. Shoot him again. Ah.
0: And at its end, the bridge, a key crossing over the Khan Canal, was theirs. Come on. Nice. So far, so good. Now, all the outnumbered and lightly armed men had to do was hold firm against inevitable German counterattacks, and wait. Wait and hope. The largest invasion force ever to take to the sea, at that moment approaching the French coast under the cover of darkness, could smash the formidable defenses of the Atlantic wall and cover the handful of miles to the small village of Beneville before the ox and bucks ran out of men and ammunition. D Company had successfully launched the first allied mission of D-Day, Operation Overlord, a plan of high ambition and risk that would, if successful, lead to the end of the Second World War. If it failed, that hardly bore thinking about after nearly five years of war. Nevertheless, as the invasion fleet sailed from Portsmouth and ports along the south coast of England and beyond, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Commander-in-Chief, scribbled a brief note accepting full responsibility should his men be thrown back into the sea. And D Company left to a grisly fate.
2: We believe that the Nazis and the fascists have asked for it and they're going to get it. One
0: of the first steps towards that desirable end was the... The journey to what was to become known as Pegasus Bridge and the beaches of Normandy had begun in early 1943. Here, plans
3: for the year's offensive were laid, and the terms to be offered to the enemy condensed into the two words, unconditional
0: surrender. Lieutenant-General Frederick Morgan was ordered to come up with a plan to mount...
3: A full-scale assault against the continent in 1944 to defeat
1: the German fighting forces in northwest Europe.
0: By the end of 1943, Eisenhower was in place, the supreme Allied commander, with General Bernard Montgomery, Monty, victor of the Desert War, installed as commander of all land forces for the invasion. The Axis
4: forces in the desert are in full retreat. There's no shadow of doubt about
2: it. The enemy are on the run.
0: But where to invade? In his initial plan, Morgan proposed landing three Allied divisions in Normandy, where the beaches were close to ideal, but most importantly, defenses were not as strong as at the Pas de Calais, attempting short hop from Dover. Memories of the disastrous Dieppe raid of 1942 remained strong. Ike and Monty liked the outline of Morgan's idea. They took his plan and ran with it. Adding more men and broadening the assault along 60 miles of the Normandy coast. Some 73,000 US troops, 62,000 British, and 21,000 Canadian would cross the channel. Many were green, thousands of junior officers and enlisted men who'd never shot a weapon in anger, never confronted the Wehrmacht. A Wehrmacht that, although its reputation had been battered on the Eastern Front, in the deserts of North Africa and in Sicily, was still regarded as a formidable foe, with better tanks and better weapons than the Allies. Take the MG42; it fired 1,200 rounds per minute. The British Bren gun couldn't manage even half that. <laughs> And they were led by a man whose reputation was greater still, Monty's old foe, Irvin Rommel. Rommel commanded Army Group B, which included a Normandy coast guarded by concrete bunkers, trenches, and emplacements, all behind a mass of six million mines. Executing a successful landing at such distance from the English coast remained a daunting task. Preparation was all. The devil was in the detail. Commandos were landed by mini submarine to crawl onto the beaches under German noses and collect sand samples just to be sure the beaches would take the weight of a Sherman tank. As little as possible was left to chance, but there was nothing that could be done about that staple of an English summer, bad weather. As May turned to June, Eisenhower and his staff scowled out the windows of Southwick House, their headquarters outside Portsmouth. It was said to be the worst summer weather for 20 years. No invasion could take place unless the weather was on side. It was postponed once. The cooped up troops in damp camps across the south of England were grumbling. How long could they keep the men on edge for? Would the secrecy of the operation hold? Dr. James Stagg was head of the British and US meteorological team. The weathermen were split, unable to agree. On Sunday, 4th of June, Stagg met with Eisenhower at 4.15 a.m. His news was as gloomy as the weather. But as the day wore on and information was collated from weather stations on the Atlantic coast, Stagg glimpsed a gap in the storm clouds. At half past nine that evening, Eisenhower assembled his most senior commanders in the library of Southwark House. The rain splattered on the window behind the heavy blackout curtains. Montgomery, Lee Mallory and Bertram Ramsey, the Army, Air Force and Naval commanders were there.
5: Stagg had a little grin on his face. He never laughed very much. He was a fine man and he said, well, I'll give you some good news.
0: News delivered. Stag left the room. Ike put his head in his hands, then looked up they would go. Outside, the rain and wind continued to lash down as jeeps raced off to spread the news. The invasion was on. A few hours later, they met again, the final say. All eyes were on Ike. He nodded.
5: OK, let's go. Up, up, wakey,
3: wakey! We're off the track.
0: fleet destined for Utah, the furthest of the five beaches had already turned back once. This time there would be no turning back. Eisenhower left Southwark House and returned to his caravan in the grounds. He lived in a large trailer put together by a former Hollywood nightclub designer, where in rare downtime he lay on his bunk, read Westerns, and smoked. Harry Butcher, his aide, and Kay Summersby, his secretary and driver, were with him for a time.
3: His eyes were bloodshot and he was so tired, his hand shook when he lit a cigarette.
0: His hand may have shaken through tiredness, but equally it may have been nerves. So much was riding on his decisions, and there were plenty who thought him ill-equipped to make them.
1: There's no doubt Ike is out to do all he can to maintain the best of relations between British and Americans. But it's equally clear he knows nothing about strategy and is quite unsuited to the post of Supreme Commander as far as running the war is concerned.
0: The views of Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, Chief of Defence Staff, were matched by Monty. Nice chap, said Monty of his boss.
1: But no, soldier.
0: Montgomery was just one of a disparate group of commanders, all with huge ambitions, flaws, and egos of their own. These were the men Eisenhower had to control and direct to carry out a plan itself of huge ambition, as well as risk. It was win or bust.
5: This operation is not being planned with any alternatives. This operation is planned as a victory and that's the way it's going to be. We're going down there and we're throwing everything we have into it and we're going to make it a success.
0: Major Howard and D Company were the first of Ike's men to put his operation into practice and make a success of it. Not far behind came their fellow airborne troops, a huge fleet of planes and gliders crossing the channel, seeking their drop zones at either end of the invasion beaches.
3: Before I see the dawn of another day, I want to stick this knife into the heart of the meanest, dirtiest, filthiest Nazi in all of Europe.
0: Colonel Jump Johnson delivered his pep talk to the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment with a pair of pearl-handled revolvers hanging on his hips. He pulled a large knife from his boot as he spoke. Before him, many of his men in the 82nd Airborne had shaved their heads to make wounds easier to treat. Some shaved the sides and left a the Mohican. They'd first aid kits stuck to the back of their helmets, including two serrets of morphine, and were weighed down with equipment. They carried 160 rounds of ammunition, four grenades, and an anti-tank mine. Everything through to 24 sheets of toilet paper and a French phrase book. Dog tags were taped together to stop them clinking. Outside the hangar, the paratroopers could do little more than waddle towards rows of C-47 Skytrains. At 2200, the order came. Eisenhower was at Greenham Common to watch the 101st depart. Kay Summersby said he'd tears in his eyes as he watched the planes take off at 10-second intervals. On board, the men were lost in their own thoughts.
3: Here we sat, each man alone in the dark. These men around me were the best friends I will ever know. I wondered how many would die before the sun came up. Lord, I pray, please let me do everything right. Don't let me get anybody killed. And don't let me get killed either. Or they think I'm too young for this.
5: Kill or be killed. Here I am brought up as a good Christian. Obey this and do that. The Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not kill. There is something wrong with the Ten Commandments, or there is something wrong with the rules of the world today. They teach us the Ten Commandments, and then they send us out to war, and it just doesn't make
0: sense. The two U.S. divisions were to be landed on the Cotentin Peninsula, on the western flank of the invasion. The 82nd were to secure the town of sainte mere eglise which sat across strategic roads and seize crossings over the river Merderay. The 101st were charged with securing the causeways that led through the flooded countryside off Utah Beach. Without the causeways, the forces landing on Utah would be stuck on the beach. The British 6th Airborne were to guard the invasion's southern flank, as well as blowing some bridges to stop German counter-attacks, and capturing others to aid British and Canadian advances off Gold, Juno and Sword beaches. And first, they needed the bridges at Ranville and Beneville. Major Howard's men were tough. His motto was win at everything. Even when it came to brawling with U.S. troops in pubs, they were trained to operate on the very edge. They landed in six horser gliders, and once the shock of hitting the ground had gone, the pilot of one, Oliver Bolland, announced their arrival. Okay, we're here. Now piss off and do what you're paid to do.
1: Go to lights! Up the auction back! Go with the
0: The first men rushed for the pillbox on the west side of the canal. One of them was Wally Parr.
1: I dashed to the first one, put my rifle in the side of it, whipped out a 36 grenade. I slung open the door, pulled the pin, slung it in, shut the door and waited. It went off a treat.
0: Lieutenant Den Brotheridge led the rest of the platoon across the bridge. Come
1: on, lads. We were not taking any prisoners. Anything that moved, we shot.
0: The startled Germans at last opened fire. Brotheridge, whose wife Margaret was soon to give birth to their first child, was shot through the neck. It was a mortal wound. He was lying on his back looking up at the stars and looking terribly surprised. Just surprised. The doctor gave him a shot of morphine and began to dress the wound. Before he could finish it, Brotheridge was dead. The German vehicle approached the far side of the bridge. It contained five German paratroopers who watched in alarm as the British came towards
4: them. The way they charged, the way they fired, the way they ran across the bridge. I'm not a coward, but at the moment I got frightened. In this moment, become a afraid.
0: The German defense was soon broken. Those who could fled. The bridge was D Company's, and so, a short distance away, was the Orn Bridge. Corporal Tappenden, the radio operator, huddled over his set to send the success signal
3: Ham and jam.
0: Ham and jam. Ham
3: and
0: jam. Ham and jam. Ham and
1: jam. Ham and bloody jam. There was
0: no response, so he kept transmitting. Frustration growing. Wally Parr, meanwhile, had taken up position by the cafe next to the bridge, run by a resistance member, Georges Gondry. Parr peered through a grill beneath his feet into the cafe's cellar, where he caught sight of Gondry's wife and children. He handed down a bar of chocolate.
1: They were the first children to be liberated in the invasion of Europe. Liberated. By a Cockney soldier
0: with a bar of chocolate. Not long after there was another sweet sight for the Gondry children to witness. The night sky filled with white parachutes, hundreds upon hundreds of them. The rest of Sixth Airborne were on the way. At eleven minutes past one, the telephone rang at General Marx's HQ. Marx, commander of the Seventh Army, the German defenders of the Normandy coast, was handed the receiver.
4: The, is the general's body stiffened. His right hand clutched the edge of the table. With a jerk of his head, he beckoned to his chief of staff to listen in.
0: Paratroopers, Marx was informed, were dropping around the river Orne. The telephone kept ringing parachutists at sainte mere eglise on both banks of the river Mördere. The German reaction was as confused as the information they were receiving. The Allies also dropped dummies that exploded on landing. Some hurried to their invasion positions, others went back to sleep, another false alarm. The British drop was not going to plan. Although this was not a complete surprise. Gentlemen, in spite of your excellent training and orders,
1: do not be daunted if chaos reigns. It undoubtedly will.
0: Paratroopers lost in the night whispered code words as they struggled to find their comrades. Boiled beef. Boiled beef. Boiled beef. Boiled beef. The reply they were looking for was carrots. Lieutenant Colonel Terence Otway's 9th Parachute Battalion were among the worst affected. Otway's task was to destroy the Merville battery, huge guns that could threaten the invasion fleet in beaches. He was to accomplish his mission by 6 a.m., when HMS Arethusa would open fire on Merville with her six-inch guns. Fewer than 160 of Otway's 600 men reached the assembly point. Otway was in a bind, unsure of his next move. The clock was ticking. He turned to Joe Wilson, his batman. I I don't know what I'm going to do, Wilson. Shall we take our brandy now, sir? It was the right answer. A stiff drink made up Otway's mind. They would go ahead. It was 4.45 a.m. They had little over an hour and were short of men and the required equipment. Two men sneaked through the German wire and marked a path through the minefield. The attack followed. It was brief, brutal, and bloody. In minutes, they suffered 75 casualties out of 160, but the guns were taken and blown up. Elsewhere, paratroopers were assembling into makeshift units. There was plenty of confusion. Brigadier James Hill, the one who'd warned of chaos reigning, was wounded in the buttock. One unit of Canadians was guided through the night by a young French girl to the key bridge at Robom, which they held until engineers arrived to blow it. There was one bridge still left to destroy, over the River Dee in the small town of Troan. It carried the main road from Carn to La Havre, crucial for any German attempts to attack the invasion force before it could get its feet dry. Major Tim Rosevier was charged with blowing the bridge, but landed five miles off target. Undeterred, he gathered eight men, packed what explosives he could find into a commandeered jeep and trailer, Stormed through two roadblocks and through the town under fire.
2: Ah.
0: Sergeant Bill Irving was alongside Roosevelt.
1: Ready. The further we went, the more the fire came at us, and the faster Roosevelt drove the jeep, and the more we fired back. Started to take evasive action. Was blazing away with my Sten at anything that moved. By the end. I don't know how it happened, but I was lying flat on the bonnet of the Jeep. We were excited. We, there was no real feeling of being frightened. Stop
0: it, On route, they lost only the Bren gunner, Sappa Peachy, who'd been perched on the back of the trailer. Peachy fell off and was taken prisoner. They reached the bridge, laid charges, and left the trailer full of any leftover explosive as an insurance policy. Charge is laid, Major. She's ready to go. Pull the horse, sir. No, Sergeant, you laid
1: them.
2: The honour is yours. Be sure, sir.
0: Perhaps you should... On with it, man. Blow it.
2: Come on, chaps. Everyone in the jeep. Take it down, Sergeant Irving.
0: Meanwhile, another party of Rosevier's men had blown both bridges at Beursa-Div, and the Canadians had destroyed the two at Robom and Varavie. All five bridges over the Div were down. The two US airborne divisions took a different route to Normandy. Heading for the Channel Islands, then turning east at a signal from a Royal Navy motor torpedo boat, and flying over the Cotton Town Peninsula towards their drop zones. They flew in sticks of 18 men to a plane. Any paratrooper who refused to jump would be court-martialed. General Maxwell Taylor, commander of the 101st, brought a pillow, lay on the floor and slept. This, his fifth jump, would earn him his paratroop wings. He insisted he'd be first out the door. The problems began as soon as they hit the mainland. Fog enveloped the air armada, and when they came out, it was into heavy anti-aircraft fire.
1: Oh God of our fathers, bless our efforts to provide the armament for peace and protect us if we must answer the call to arms to defend our faith.
5: I was so scared that my knees were shaking, and just to relieve the tension, I had to say something. So I shouted, what time is it? Someone called back,
0: 1.30. Four minutes from the drop zone, the red light came on. The pilots were supposed to reduce speed to 90 to 110 miles an hour to allow the airborne to jump safely. As the anti-aircraft fire exploded around them, many didn't. Some of the more experienced pilots lowered their landing gear in a desperate attempt to slow their speed.
3: My plane was bouncing like something gone wild. I could hear the machine gun rounds walking across the wings. It was hard to stand up, and troopers were falling down and getting up. Some were throwing up. Of all the training we had, there was not anything that had prepared us for this.
0: When the green light flashes on, an American paratrooper is supposed to yell Bill Lee, in honor of General Lee, father of the US Airborne Corps, and jump. Few did. They had other things on their mind.
5: I looked out into what looked like a solid wall of tracer bullets. I remember this as clearly as if it happened this morning. It's engraved in the cells of my brain. I said to myself, Len, you're in as much trouble now as you're ever gonna be.
0: Some pilots had flown so low, even below 500 feet, there was barely time for parachutes to open. Some didn't. One man witnessed an entire stick drop to their deaths. He said the sound was like watermelons falling off the back of a truck.
1: (sighs) Oh, shit! Billy!
3: I looked up and watched in detached amazement as bullets ripped through my chute. Every color of the rainbow was flashing through the sky. Equipment bundles attached to chutes that did not fully open came hurtling past me. Troopers floated past. Below me, figures were running in all directions, and I thought, Christ, I'm going to land right in the middle of a bunch of Germans. Oh,
0: God.
3: My chute floated into the branches of an apple tree and dumped me in the ground with a thud. I felt a strange surge of elation, I was alive.
0: Many were not so lucky. There were plenty of broken bones, a few men left paralyzed. Others landed in the flooded fields where some were rescued by a French family in a rowboat. American parachutes didn't have a quick release harness like the British, so it was more difficult to rid yourself of your parachute especially in water that came over your head.
2: My heart was beating so rapidly. I thought it would burst. I prayed, oh God, please, don't let me drown in this damn water. I was in a panic. I came up for another breath of air, and I thought my heart was gonna burst with fright. I wanted to scream for help, but I knew that would make matters worse.
0: Private Porcella finally managed to find his knife and cut himself out of his straps and kit. A lieutenant of the 508th, found himself being dragged by his still inflated parachute through three feet of water the weight of his kit preventing him from turning over his face shoved
2: underwater several times i thought it was no use and decided to open my mouth and drown but each time the wind would slack up enough for me to put my head out of the water and catch a breath I must have swallowed a lot of water because I didn't take a drink for two days afterwards. Bullets were singing over my head from machine guns and rifles, but it
0: didn't bother me, because at that point, I didn't care. In all, 36 men of the 82nd were reported to have drowned. The 82nd had been given toy shop cricket clickers to identify friend or foe. The men hated them preferring to use the password flash, answer thunder. Captain Sam Gibbons spent an hour looking for his men, at last saw someone, clicked once, and waited for the response.
5: Now, suddenly, I felt a thousand years younger, and both of us moved forward so we could touch each other. I whispered my name and he whispered his. To my surprise, he was not from my plane. In fact, he was not even from my division.
0: This was a feature of the US landings. Men were scattered across the peninsula, small groups struggled around in the dark, others were alone and frightened. But chance meeting followed chance meeting and make-do units gathered. Small groups went off looking for war. Confusion and chaos reigned, just as with parts of the British drop, but so well briefed were the men down to the lowest private, there was often someone in a group who could suggest the target. One group of the 508th ambushed a speeding German staff car. It turned out to be General Wilhelm Falli, a divisional commander. Wounded and thrown clear, he was shot as he scrambled for his pistol.
4: Plötzlich kam ein Curry auf uns zu und rief.
1: All of a sudden a courier ran towards us shouting, alert, alert, enemy paratroops. We laughed as we told him not to excite himself like that. Here, sit down and drink a little cow for dust with us. But then the sky was filled with planes. That sobered us up. At one stroke, there were soldiers coming out of all the corners, It was like a swan of maddened bees.
0: The area around Saint-Mer-Église was defended by German paratroopers. Who considered themselves
4: an elite unit. Ehrlich gesagt, angst. Frankly, we weren't afraid. We were so confident that everything should be settled in a few hours. We didn't even take our personal effects, only weapons, ammunition, and some food. Everyone was confident. It
0: was to be a rude awakening for the Germans. It took the 82nd less than an hour to seize the town. St. Mary Glees was small and unremarkable, but straddled a vital road across Normandy. Some of the US paratroopers landed literally on top of it. A couple became snagged on the spire of the town's church. One unfortunate dropped straight into a burning house. Others were shot before their feet touched the ground. The man tasked with orchestrating the taking of St. Mary Gliese was Lieutenant Colonel Edward Krauss, known as Blood and Guts a veteran of Sicily, he was loathed and loved by his men in equal measure. His first task was to gather his scattered battalion, or as much of it as he could. While Kraus was assembling his force outside the town, others were already attacking on their own initiative. Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Vandervoort, who'd broken his ankle on landing, led one group of 50 men to take the Northern Road. An even smaller force laid mines across the Southern Road and dug in. Krauss gathered some 200 men and slipped into the town, directed by a Frenchman who was said to have spent the night drinking wine until his employment as a guide for the 82nd. As they advanced, they passed bodies of their comrades, hanging from trees, swaying in the wind. Quickly and efficiently, Krauss's men took St. mere Eglise. Many of the Germans had fled. Krauss took a stars and stripes from his bag and raised it in front of the town hall. He signaled his commanding officer.
2: I have a secured St. Mare Eglise. Repeat, I have a secured St. Mare Eglise.
0: Elsewhere, US paratroopers were fighting confusion and muddle as much as the Germans. By the end of D-Day, 22 hours after they jumped, the 101st had assembled less than half their 6,000 men. They were not helped by the unfamiliar Norman countryside. The thickness and height of the giant
3: hedges came as a
0: complete surprise.
3: I climbed the hedge and slowly looked over. And as I did, a German on the other side looked over. And in the dark, I could barely see his features. And we stood there looking at each other. And then slowly, each of us went back down.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Louis Mendez was on his own for five days, wandering across the Cottontan Peninsula fighting a one-man war.
3: I got three
2: heinies with three shots from my pistol. I got two heinies with a carbine. I got
1: one with a hand grenade.
0: 201st troopers rode into St. Gleese on horseback.
5: An American on a white horse came down the road with about 11 prisoners. He called out, These are Polish all but these two who are he then took out his pistol and shot both of them in the back of the head we just stood there
0: others formed small groups and fought brief ferocious engagements it was some of the most brutal fighting on the western front there were reports of atrocities and executed prisoners. US paratroopers recounted stories of finding mutilated bodies of their comrades. Don't you guys dare take any prisoners. Shoot the bastards, ordered a captain after one such gruesome discovery. General Taylor of the 101st gathered around 30 men, including four colonels, and set out for the causeways that were his division's main target. Never before in the annals of warfare have so few been commanded by so many. Equipped Taylor. Some had lucky escapes. One glider landed next to a well-defended bunker.
1: Upon landing, we discovered the source of the ground fire which nearly got me. It turned out to be a bunker containing about a dozen conscripted Polish soldiers with one German in charge. After the glider infantrymen directed a hail of rifle fire at the bunker, the resistance ceased. There was silence in the bunker, then a single shot. There were shouts and laughter, and these Poles emerged with their hands held high. They weren't about to fight the Americans, so they simply shot the Kraut sergeant.
0: Others had it tougher. One platoon of the 501st was pinned down by machine gun fire, trapped in a marsh, clueless as to where they were.
2: You know, Lieutenant Starkvich, I think the Germans are winning this war.
0: It was not a view shared by their superiors. Back in his trailer near Portsmouth, Eisenhower was still up, chain-smoking and reading his westerns, when he received first reports of the airborne drops. They were encouraging. So encouraging, Air Vice Marshal Lee Mallory, who'd predicted the paratroop landings would be a massacre, penned a groveling apology to his commanding officer. I am more than thankful that I can say that my misgivings were unfounded. May I congratulate
1: you on the wisdom of your choice,
0: The 6th Airborne achieved many of their allotted tasks. The US divisions also achieved much, even if they were hampered by the scattering of so many of their men, although it didn't stop them attacking the first Germans they came across. Private Fitzgerald of the 101st helped men from the 82nd assault an anti-aircraft gun firing on incoming gliders.
2: Oh, my signal. Now! (laughs) Hit the flag!
3: Hit the flag! I emptied my M1 clip at the two Germans on the left. In a moment, it was over. Sweat broke out of my forehead. My hands were trembling. It was the first time I'd ever fired at a living thing. I noticed the condom hanging loosely at the end of my rifle. I'd put it there before the jump to keep the barrel dry, then I forgot about it.
0: On the edge of Saint-Mer-Eglise, Fitzgerald saw a sight that captured the small scale struggles faced by so many of the 101st and 82nd.
3: It's never left my memory. It was a picture story of the death of an airborne trooper. He'd occupied a German foxhole and made it his personal Alamo. Around the hole lay the bodies of nine German soldiers. The closest was only three feet away, a grenade in his fist. The other distorted forms lay where they had fallen Testimony to the ferocity of the fight, cartridge cases litter the ground. His rifle stock was broken in two. He had fought alone, and like many others that night, he died alone. I looked at his dog tags. The name read Martin V. Hirsch. I wrote the name down in a small prayer book I carried, hoping someday I would meet someone who knew him. I never did.
0: There were notable successes that have gone down in US military history, such as Lieutenant Richard Winters leading Easy Company's attack on a German battery at Braycourt Manor. Winters had 10 men and was outnumbered five to one. He lost four killed and one wounded, but such was the swiftness and boldness of the attack. His squad destroyed four German 105 millimeter guns, killed 15, took 12 prisoners and wounded many more. For most of the paratroopers, this was their first taste of action.
1: We were so full of fire that day, I I was sure I would not be killed. I felt that if a bullet was headed for
2: me, it would be deflected.
0: For the rest of the invasion force, those coming by sea, their day of days was about to begin. Next, on wars that shaped the world.
1: Ships and boats of every nature and size turned the rough channel surface seemingly into a mass so solid one could have walked from shore to shore. I remember thinking that Hitler must have been mad to think Germany could defeat a nation capable of filling the sea and sky with so much ordnance.
0: Wars That Shaped the World was a Goalhanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor.